Last year, I think, was an interesting year for us chasing bull trout, where we had more instances of them ever before actually hitting other fish that we had hooked. So I probably 20 to 30 times last year, we would have a whitefish or a cutthroat on the line, and we would have a, a big bull trout aggressively come out of nowhere and try to snatch that fish. And so I think when it comes to the streamer side of it, you really want to be fishing patterns that really simulate that fish and panic. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing. The Fly Crate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Fly Crate's guide magazine, the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door, some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. Theflycrate.com. Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Today, we've got a gentleman out of Nelson, British Columbia by the name of Dana Harrison. Now, Dana is a writer for Fish West out of Sandy, Utah. Takes some amazing photography, uh, some great pics I've seen on uh, Instagram and uh, avid fly fisher. Dana, thanks for coming on the program today. Thank you very much. Super stoked to be here. Yeah, man. Let's get it. We'll get into kind of your 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 photography and your writing that you've been up to. But I, I always like to kick the show off, kind of um, take it back to your roots. Um, how did you get started uh, in fly fishing? Uh, I think originally, I didn't actually start throwing a fly rod until I was 23 and I'm 36 now. But when my dad used to take us, I, I grew up in I grew up in Robson, right in the Columbia River. And so we used to go spin cast and, you know, the old Zebco push buttons and launch lures in the river. But my dad would fly fish a lot. So I watched him doing it. And I think it wasn't until I got older. I just, for some reason, and I'm not even going to lie, just one day when I was 23, I phoned my dad and I was like, I need to learn how to fly fish. And we went to Canadian Tire, bought a setup, and I spent that day in a field learning to cast and next day on the river. And then I was kind of only like really a weekend warrior fly fisher until about... Uh, I think August 2016, for some reason, it really just flipped with me and I started just taking it really serious and putting way more time on the water. So that's kind of just how I got going. I always like to ask, what is it that kind of brings you to the water? Like, wh wh where does your motivation come from for the sport? I think it's, some of it's the solidarity because I, I fish, I fish alone a lot. And the only other real person I put time on the water with is actually my brother, to be honest. But I think it's just that time where for me, it being out there, you got a totally clear head. And you have, I find that I focus so much on fly fishing that while I'm doing it is that there's just there's nothing else going on. Like I'm so focused on that and whatever else going on in my head is gone. And it's just kind of a it's peaceful. I like exploring. I like walking the banks of rivers and trying to find spots I've never seen before and put in those big hikes. And I think it's just it's just getting away from the grind, man. <laughs> if you had to pick somebody that's been kind of the biggest influence in your fly fishing over the years, who, who would that be? I think it would have to be my dad because he showed me originally how to fly fish, how to cast. Uh, and definitely how to, how to read a river. Definitely some of those skills were for definitely instrumental in what I could do now. And hmm. I, I remember being out on a river one time and just, I think it was my fourth day literally casting on a river and my dad just pointing to a spot and said, put the fly there. And it was only like three feet off the bank. 
and the fly was only like on the water for two seconds and boom, fish on. So I think it'd have to be my dad. <laughs> That's a bit of a heart stopper, isn't it? For the first time when you see that. Oh, it is. Yeah. It's, 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 it still gets me, man. It still gets me. <laughs> yeah. That's why we all keep coming back. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about how you got this uh, photography bug. Well, I think it came after the Instagram thing, to be honest. So I started posting fly fishing material to an Instagram account. Well, kind of when I started tying again as an adult. So around, again, 2016, August 2016. And uh, as I started doing it, obviously, I was more on Instagram and following more people in the fly fishing area of instagram and eventually i just was like oh man the phone the phone's just not cutting it and then i think it was that winter actually that i i picked up my first camera just a cheap one just to see if i was going to get into it and uh it honestly just kind of grew from there and snowballed i just really i really enjoyed it i spent a lot of time over that winter learning about photography endless youtube videos watching reading everything you can get your hands on and it's still growing like i'm still i'm t still totally 100 an amateur in photography by all means uh but it's just it's enjoyable. Like I like getting those shots and something that now me and my brother share a little bit as well too. He, he doesn't own a camera himself, but he's slowly learning on mine when he gets his hands on it. So it kind of just grew from there to be honest. Dana, I'd be curious if you could kind of share with our, our listeners, what kind of gear you recommend for, because I mean, I, you say you're amateur. Well, I'll tell you what, I've seen some of your shots and, and I think you're being a little humble, but um, what kind of gear are you using to get those uh, shots? Well, it's so, the the body i ended up going with was a sony body and i went with one of their mirrorless bodies so i'm particularly using an a6500 but i think anything in the a6000 series is a great body to go with especially if you're more focused on photography and not video i thought i was gonna get into video but to be honest i found out i don't really have the the patience or the heart for it so um but the nice thing about the sony mirrorless bodies is they're small and they're pretty compact but then the only thing I really do differently when I'm doing pictures of flies is I cheat a little bit. And so uh, I use these things called extension tubes and they kind of simulate uh, a macro lens without owning a macro lens. And so I usually use about 16 millimeters worth of uh, extension tubes on a 50 millimeter lens. And that really simulates the macro and you're able to get some decent uh, shots of flies. And like <laughs> you'd be... It, it, it's it's pretty laughable my lighting setup I'd like a lot of people talk about light boxes and all these super fancy things for doing pictures of their flies but uh to be honest i turn all the lights off in my kitchen and uh i then hold a phillips led bulb with one hand and take the photo with the other it's it's probably pretty funny to well, see well that's one thing <laughs> i really find with small photography on on like say flies or something like that you you don't have to do much to move that light to really change the image no i and that's i think that's one of the reasons like i do it with my hand because i every fly i do move that light around a lot i probably take anywhere between 20 to 30 photos of every fly and then i do do editing a lightroom uh adobe lightroom and so i import all the photos i usually pick the one i'm the most happy with and then i make a couple adjustments usually with light because the the light can be pretty harsh without being diffused properly with the way i do it but they, they tend to come out correct but you're right light light can change everything sometimes i like it where it's coming up from the top or from the bottom down from the top off to the left it really just depends on the fly and what strikes me is the most striking lighting on the fly but i usually take yeah between 20 or 30 of each fly before i decide on which one i like maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh taking kind of uh, those half underwater shots or underwater shots what camera are you using for that i actually don't have any underwater shots none no <laughs> okay 
Well, then I'll just uh, pretend I didn't ask that question and don't sound like an idiot. Because that seems to be the shot that everyone's going for these days is the kind of half-submerged no, shot. No, totally. Well, definitely quite a few people are doing it. I know I know. Brennan's done a lot of them. Um, and I'm not sure if I asked him specifically or he's mentioned to somebody else, but I believe he's actually made his own little submersible box for his camera. Because I believe he shoots on a Canon. But there are cases out there that I can't remember the name of the company, but they, they do make fully submersible housings for cameras and specifically mine as well. But it's like thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars for that case just to get those shots. And while I do think they're cool, um, I think they're a little niche, not mm-hmm. really where I'm at yet. <laughs> right. So tell me a little bit about these picks that you're getting in the, in the West Kootenai and wherever you happen to be fishing. So you're, you came to write for uh, Fish West out of Sandy, Utah. How did that happen? Uh, that came pretty actually early in my fly fishing Instagram career. They had, I think it was late one year. It might have even been 2016. I'd have to go back and look. But um, they they literally had an open call for, for new ambassadors for their, their fly shop. They do writers and stuff like that from all over the world, actually. Um, and I figured I was from part of the world, being BC, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> probably one of the better parts for fly fishing because I actually do lots of my fly fishing in the East Kootenays, even though I'm from the West Kootenays. And so I kind of just applied and did a little bit of an application process. And I must have said the right things because it definitely wasn't my Instagram followers at the time because I didn't have very many. And uh, they kind of just picked me up. And I've just kind of worked with that relationship uh, ever since then till now. And um, they're actually really cool people. I, I really like everybody down at Fish West. I talk to them very often through email. And I even phone down to the shop and just sometimes talk fishing with them honestly they're super cool guys they're trying to get me down there uh to come fish but uh i don't currently have my passport and i am a terrible traveler but i, I will probably suck it up and do it eventually i i suspect if there's a river somewhere waiting for you you'll find a way to get there. <laughs> yeah definitely probably down the green river the provo in utah or they're on my list getting back to your writing um what motivates you to write a story how do you come up with the content i'm always curious about that uh for most of it, it has to be from direct experience for me. So uh, I kind of had a hard time coming up with content at the beginning because I didn't, I didn't have any real direct or recent trips from experience to draw upon. But lots of it comes from that. So lots of it will be like, I'll bomb over for the weekend, visit my brother. He's over in these Kootenays. We'll do some fishing. We'll do a bunch of photography. I'll come back with that. And I'll, I'll specifically write about our trip. So a lot of it is mm-hmm. that. Um, and then some of it, uh, I'm not going to lie, my uh, my buddy Jake, hey, um, Trout Madness on Instagram, he's an amazing writer and has stories of the wazoo. And sometimes when I get stumped, he'll he'll at least get me started with the topic and uh, I'll kind of take it from there. But he's, uh, he's a great help when it comes to ideas. That's awesome. And you combine with it your uh, skill set uh, from a photography viewpoint. And uh, I did read some uh, pretty good uh, posts. Yeah, I, I, I try to be pretty authentic. When it comes to writing, and I've I've tried to tackle tackle some pretty serious subjects too. I think when it comes to social media and fly fishing, and sometimes how I think the old the old folks, and I hate to say that, but like the older guys are jumping down the newer guys' throats. But I think it just needs to be. I think there needs to be more of like a, a teaching mentality than a you're doing it wrong mentality, right? Because uh, we all started, and uh, I have a real terrible picture on my Instagram account of me holding a bull trout for the first time, and uh, I got blamed for that uh but i i leave it up for the exact reason that uh i could point people out what not to do now honestly because 
when I did have somebody approach me correctly in a, in a manner that was more in a mentoring teaching aspect, I was I was very willing to listen and uh, and take their points and understand for definitely protecting the fish and handling them better. And I I actually respect that type of advice. But when people just you know jump down your throat on it, it and then nobody's going to make changes based on that. So that was definitely one of the more mm-hmm. serious topics I took on writing. And then I think one of the last one, more serious one was with the fire, the forest fires we've had recently. I I, I wrote about that recently, and I think. That just came from like, I don't know, like experience and passion on the subject. And I think a lot of things need to change because I can remember growing up here, man, in the West Kootenays and used to be blue skies and sunburns. And now it's like in smoke mass and yeah, just hazy days. Yeah, the the weather's been doing some interesting things for sure. And the, the one good thing is we, we sure seem to have a, a decent snowpack this year. So I would imagine a lot of the rivers you're going to be headed out to uh, in 2019 here are going to be uh, good level. Yeah, it's actually, I've been following it. We're actually a little low compared to last year, but we're still a, okay. We're still above the 100% normal. So I think last year the East Kootenays ended really high, like almost at 140% of normal snowpack. Uh, and so early season, the, the rivers were just toast. Like the, uh, the Slocan river near me in the West Goonies was insanely blown for, I think until July, it was, it was nutty. Mm. So I'm hoping this year we get a little slight better start to river season, but we'll see. Might get, might get stuck on the lakes a little longer than I want to. It seems to me that, uh, you do a lot of targeting these, uh, bull trout and that's, that's something I get, um, a lot of inquiries about bull trout and BC is really becoming well known for this now. So maybe speak to, uh, chasing these large fish. Uh, well, I'm pretty, I'm pretty new to doing it correctly or at least having any success with it, to be perfectly honest. Last year, I think was an interesting year for us chasing bull trout where we had more instances of them ever before actually hitting other fish that we had hooked. So I probably 20 to 30 times last year, we would have a white fish or a cutthroat on the line and we would have uh, a big bull trout aggressively come out of nowhere and try to snatch that fish. And so I think when it comes to the streamer side of it, you really want to be fishing patterns that really simulate that fish in panic. You know what I mean? Like not just a clean stripping fly, but something that really simulates that complete frantic nature of a fish that's in panic or you know what i mean like running for its life i found out that worked really well but another honestly way i've had a ton of success is nymphing for bull trout to be honest but you gotta have to really know what you're doing and it's more of a specific site targeting thing for that but i caught more bull trout nymphing last year than streamers dana what would be your go-to pattern uh largely for bull trout streamer wise big and white nothing specific something that's going to be big white cause a lot of motion but I've tried lots of different patterns, and white white seems to always get them going for some reason. I have, I like maybe they just hate white fish. I have no idea, but white white seems to get them going. Well, and white always pops in the water, no yeah. matter no matter what. Uh, what exactly? What about nymph patterns? Are you fishing stonefly nymphs, or um, what direction do you go with that? Uh, it varies. I, I actually have a couple like absurdly large stonefly patterns that I've had success with, and like like big, like probably full two inches in length like large large stoneflies uh but then honestly i hate to say it but like san juan worms actually work pretty well <laughs> really yeah. we're chatting today with dana harrison out of nelson british columbia writer for fish west out of sandy utah and uh photographer 
Uh, I'm curious about your fly tying, Dana, because um, some of those patterns you're doing are some pretty nice flies. And uh, maybe we can talk kind of when, when did you get started in uh, fly tying? Uh, I first started tying as a kid, actually. It was something that uh, I did for fun with my dad, but it was never something we did seriously. And it was my dad used to tie here and there. And so the vice would be out and me and my brother would make the ugliest flies you'd ever see just for pure entertainment value. And my dad would put them in his box like he was going to pretend to fish them. But I don't think he ever did, to be honest. <laughs> um, and then it wasn't again until until I kind of got right back into fly fishing in 2016 that I started tying like I, like a, as an adult and taking it a little more serious and, you know, working on the more traditional patterns and stuff like that. So do you spend a lot of your winters at the tying bench? Absolutely. Yeah, I tie I tie a lot in the winter. I'm not I'm not a huge winter person at all, to be honest. Um, and so, yeah, I. I, I restock and tie, but right now I'm actually, I think I pulled 200 flies out of my boxes and just put them in baggies like two weeks ago. And I'm not even sure what I'm going to do with them, to be honest with you. What kind of vice do you like to tie on? Uh, I'm tying on a Griffin Mongoose. Okay. Yeah. Any, uh, any hooks of preference, uh, brand names or, uh, that you like to go to? Uh, not really, to be honest. Uh, I hate to say this, but I tie out a lot of hooks that are given to me for free. <laughs> uh, but so there's no direct brand preference. Uh, I recently started tying some streamers on some A-Rex hooks, and uh, they are pricey, and I did actually buy those. Uh, I actually got those from Pacific Angler, from my buddy Zach, that uh, is revamping the fly tying down on that shop, and uh, I had them bring them in for me, and they are very nice. I will, I will definitely continue to spend money on those hooks in the future. Uh, but pretty specifically for streamers, I think. Is tying something you do just for yourself, or you do it also commercially? Oh, no, I do not commercially tie, brother. I do not have the patience. Like I'm like three patterns of one thing, and my attention span's gone. I'm onto something new. I can't. Uh, and I'm a little bit OCD, and so the amount of time it takes me to even put out a single fly, I'm not. I'm not making an income. <laughs> but That's funny. If you come fish with me, hundred percent, I'll give you some flies. Yeah, because. I, I have so many, but no, I'm not, I'm not selling them. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. You got any uh, crazy fish stories from your time on the water in the East Kootenai or West Kootenai that, that come to mind? I always like to ask our guests this, Dana, like, um, I mean, I know there's weird and wonderful things happening all the time out there, but anything kind of stand out in your mind? Uh, nothing too, oh, there's one, we'll see if this is appropriate or not, I guess, so, uh, Outside of Nelson, there is a large, large music festival uh, called Shambhala, um, just like the happens outside Salmo, and uh, it's pretty common. And so I actually fish on the Salmo River quite a bit throughout the summer, uh, and it's quite common for people to sneak into this music festival. And so I was fishing one of my favorite holes, and randomly uh, this girl popped out of the bush, uh, no shoes on, not wearing many clothes, small backpack. Uh, and she asked me what I was doing and I was obviously fishing <laughs> and I asked her what she was doing and she said she was trying to get to the music festival and she was walking in the complete wrong direction. And so I ended up packing up my gear and escorting her down the river so she could try to sneak into the music festival. So that was pretty entertaining <laughs> and kind of random, but not all that weird for the area, to be honest, but it was, it was still an interesting situation and probably not something normally somebody deals with. So that was that's probably my weirdest story. <laughs> well, the scene that you're in there, that Nelson scene, the food is amazing. There's there, there's so much art. It's just a very creative city, isn't it? It is. It is very much so. Absolutely, yeah. Like there is 
there is a lot going on artistically in all sorts of far forms, right? Like there's a lot of metal workers, there's a lot of people doing pottery, there's all sorts of different like paint art, everything. Uh, so much music going on. It is for being such a small town, there is something to do every night, guaranteed. There's there's always something going on for sure. I always think of Nelson as one of the coolest small cities I've ever been to. I just I, I get very motivated when I'm out that way. Is there anything that you'd like to talk about as far as um, maybe what you got coming up in, in 2019 where you're focusing kind of your attention? So most of my attention, uh, lots of it's focused on personal health, to be honest. Uh, I had a kind of a rough medical last year, had my gallbladder out, had a kidney wow. surgery last year right after that. Uh, and so still kind of still recuperating from that. So I put a pretty damper on my uh, my fishing season last year. I didn't get out as much as possible, but... I'm I'm now currently feeling about I would say 90%. So I'm hoping by the summer we'll be right back at her. Um, well, wow. a lot of my other time is focused on improving my photography. I, I want to get out and fish with my buddy Jake this year as well. We got a pretty big like week long trip planned. Uh, he's coming over with his friends, so we're gonna do that. Uh, and then I'm really focused on putting together enough photos and hopefully working on a large piece for the fall issue of uh, Fly Fusion. So I think that's my biggest focus this year is, is putting that together and, and getting not just a small piece in the magazine, but, you know, one of the one of like the large feature articles for the magazine. I think that's that's my major goal. That's really cool to have a focus like that because I've been, your articles are great. And then you'd mentioned Fly Fusion before. Did you not just have an article just published there recently? Uh, yeah, so I was in the last two issues, actually. So the, the the winter issue of 2018, I did a Fly feature article. Well, it's not an article. It's just kind of a featured fly and a little bio on myself. Uh, and then the spring issue, which subscribers should have, and I think it's on stands, will be on stands by the time this podcast is on the air. Um I did the fly tying article, so a full article on a uh, classic wet pattern, actually. And uh, the reason that kind of came about is because I actually found some of my dad's super old mustad hooks. And so I needed a super classic wet pattern to tie on them. So I went with that. That's, I find that's kind of a trend of the past uh, few years is kind of doing some of these retro patterns. There's so many new creative materials and inspiring stuff to tie with now, but sometimes we forget about the tried and true. I totally agree. And I kind of just got into specifically like wet flies in the last year. And uh, I had never really tied them before or focused on them. But I don't think there's been a lot brought, honestly, to the modern era of fly tying when it comes to wet flies. So it still seems like the cla- or the best ones or the ones that you still see on Instagram the most are still kind of those classic wet flies. And there's something about them where the the split wings and all that stuff it it uh it does it for me and honestly they they fish well i had an amazing day last year on in the east kootenays on my uh my little trout spay rod swinging a small wet fly and i did like 60 cutthroat in one day on that thing it was ridiculous it was insane and just just wet flies my brother was nymphing he did he did really well too but ugh, it was it was nutty. It was just one of those days. Yeah, they don't come along too often, but when they do, you sure you sure put them in the vault and kind of remember, hey, what was I what was I using? Oh, I don't forget. I have like twelve of them on my box right now. I can't wait. <laughs> Let's talk gear. I I've have read in some of your articles. It sounds like you're a big Reddington guy. Is, is there a certain type of fly rod you kind of gravitate to? 
it was funny. I actually didn't realize I was a big Reddington guy until I wrote that article and realized how much Reddington gear I had bought in the past year. Um, I'm not specifically a huge Reddington guy by on purpose. I just they're kind of just a good price point for your like your everyday fly fisherman, and the gear holds up well, and the warranty is really good, to be honest. Uh, but with that being said, I kind of have some really expensive stuff. Like I have a Sajax uh, four weight in an eight six uh, that I specifically use for my dry fly rod, and uh, I literally just got a G Loomis rod and a new Ross reel for my streamer setup just yesterday, actually. So, because I specifically wanted a, a heavier weight rod for throwing streamers and hopefully landing uh, bull trout a little faster than just on the five weights that we were using previously. So, so no, I'm not. I kind of like to try everything. I'm I'm not married to a brand by any means. I haven't been doing it long enough to like really make that decision, to be perfectly honest. But uh, as far as far as Reddington goes, I just feel like they put out a product that's in an affordable range for the people that are even kind of doing it as, as like the weekend warrior status, where you're still getting a good product for your dollar and they'll back your warranty up. So I think that's kind of why I gravitated towards them a little bit more, but yeah, fair enough. I think that's, that's a pretty common trait with most of the folks I talk to. Yeah. <laughs> never enough gear, never enough days, never enough water. So exactly when you're in the East Kootenai, West Kootenai and you're doing your uh, rivers or streams, um, are you mostly walk and wade? Are you doing some drifting? How does that look for you? We are a hundred percent walk and wade. I, I've actually never been in a drift boat in my entire life. <laughs> okay. I had a funny feeling you might be doing some pontoon trips or something down some of those waters. No, I'd love to, but yeah, we haven't we haven't done the jump to invest in a boat yet ourselves, and uh, unfortunately, I don't know anybody that has one yet. So uh, no, we're hundred percent hoofing it, but I, I like it. It amazes me how few um, drift boats there are in kind of uh, Western Canada. I mean, uh, outside of the Bow River, but I mean, British Columbia in general, you don't see it a lot. Well, it, true, totally depends. So. The, the Kootenai River in the East Kootenays uh, coming in about, might even be started now. So like all of March and uh, until it blows in April, you'll get a ton mm-hmm. of drift boats going down there while it's still clear. And uh, same with the Elk River, uh, just outside yeah. of Fernie. On any given day when we're walking and waiting, we'll get passed by 10 or 12 drift boats. But right. as far, I know they drift to St. Mary because I know uh, the St. Mary Angler uh mm-hmm. they do drifting on that river for sure so it they're they're there but i i rarely see them in the west Coonies, like maybe one or two a year but these Coonies we see them from time to time but they're definitely not as prevalent as some of the rivers like down in the states for sure yeah thanks for pointing that out because you, you're you're exactly right because i have spent some time on the elk and i do know yeah there's there's a lot of drift boats out that way, but uh, oh, I'm yeah. thinking yeah. like West Kootenai and kind of the interior, it's not something you see a whole heck of a lot. Like, like if you're in Montana or some of uh, these other states that, uh, you know, guys are fishing the rivers pretty hard. Oh, no, definitely not. Like you see a couple drift boats just because like they're avid fly fishermen out on the Columbia, but they're not using them in the same way as like you're covering a mass amount of water. So you usually just put them out and uh, they'll just swirl on the monster eddies on the Columbia, right? And just fish those giant eddies. If you could describe for you kind of your perfect day on the water, what does that look like? I kind of like to like paint a picture in, in the listener's <sighs> mind. Whoa, perfect day on the water. Hmm, that's interesting. Well, I'm not going to lie to you. It's not getting up early because me and my brother don't do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, we usually... We do a lot of research before we hit a spot, but I think the perfect day in the water is just, I don't think it matters that much, to be honest. Like, I just love being out on the water. 
especially when I'm out fishing with my brother. Me, me, me and my brother, we always have an amazing time, even if we're not catching fish. I think it's just getting out there, finding a spot that you're like interested to explore. I think that's one thing for me, for sure. Perfect day in the water is probably fishing somewhere I haven't fished before, to be honest. I, I really love the exploration. Last year, we hit a river that I'm not going to name. It's the first time we fished it. And we did a huge day. We did like a 14-hour day on that river. And uh, we hiked a huge section of it. And man, it was awesome. We were, we were sight fishing bull trout. We were catching cutties. Saw a couple black bears. Didn't get eaten. It was awesome. It was great. Right on. So maybe we should uh, explore your uh, your Instagram handles if people want to check out some of your amazing photography, some of the fly patterns you've been creating in the in the West Kootenai. Uh, throw it out there. How do they find you? Uh, it is at Kootenai underscore kid. So just as you would spell it. I don't. So K O O T E N A Y underscore K I D. Well, thanks so much for taking uh, the time today, Dan. I really appreciate it. And uh, good luck with uh, the health this season. And hopefully you get out on the river a lot. And I look forward to reading your your articles coming out in Fly Fusion and, of course, the stuff you're doing with uh, Fish West out of Sandy, Utah. Sweet, man. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It was awesome to be on the show. Glad you reached out. I enjoyed it. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water. Mm